All right, let's go ahead and read Leviticus chapter 5. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 6. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips, to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he's unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. And it shall be, when he's guilty in any of these matters, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. The First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we come before your throne of grace to hear your word. I thank you for, Lord, the help I've received in preparation. Pray for help and delivery. Lord, would you be gracious to speak through your servant? Lord, if there's anything that is said that does not reflect the truth contained in your word, I pray it would fall harmlessly away. That which is spoken, which is rightly dividing your word, I pray it would pierce deep into each of our hearts. Lord, our desire is to be more and more holy. So, Father, we gather now for that purpose, with that end in mind, that you might be honored and glorified by our lives as we offer them up to you as living sacrifices. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, if you remember, last week we looked at the sin or purification offering. We saw that this offering offered the Israelites the means by which they might cleanse the palace tent of the sin that they dirtied it with. It was a way to purify God's holy dwelling place so that his presence might remain among the Israelites. We saw very specifically how this taught about the detestable nature of sin, the need for blood in order to cleanse away that sin. It taught about the continuous threat of sin and impurity. But it also taught us something about God's own purity, his inability to dwell in the presence of sin and his great mercy to make a way. To dwell among a sinful people through the use of sacrifices that ultimately pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are still learning about that purification offering this morning. In fact, I had a question this week about what sins were qualified. Is this every time they sinned? And I think that's interesting that God reveals very specifically what sins are to be dealt with in the purification offering. If you're like me, you think... My goodness, by the time I was done with the first purification offering, I would turn around, say something, and then immediately need to go back for more purification offering. But the Lord gives us examples of a purification offering, or the examples for an occasion that would cause a purification offering. The big idea in all of this is this. Israel was to be just, holy, and faithful. Israel was to be just... Holy and faithful. That's really what we're going to learn from this text. 
Israel was to be just, holy, and faithful. And, and deep down, this is actually what the text teaches. Now, on a more superficial level, it's simply giving three examples of case studies of when it would be appropriate to bring forth a specific peace offering to the Lord. I've got to expand the idea a little bit for you, though, and I'm going to do that now. It goes as such. The expanded big idea, this is not in your notes, but feel free to write this if you can keep up with this, okay? Israel was to be just, holy, and faithful because humanity is to be just, holy, and faithful. Israel, as the new humanity, the new Adam, therefore was to be just, holy, and faithful. And because of that, therefore, we are to be just, holy, and faithful. Even so, the reality is we're not just holy or faithful, but Christ was perfectly just holy and faithful. Did you get all that? That's the expanded big idea. Aren't you thankful I shortened it a little bit for you? So, by His blood, we are to be just holy and faithful, and so, be just holy and faithful. That's the big idea in its expanded version. And I hope we'll see the big ideas is fleshed out as we expound the text today. And so let's dive into Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And here we're going to find three specific examples of sin, or at least a situation that would make appropriate the offering of a purification sacrifice. These specific examples, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and probably give you, I think, your outline here. I forgot exactly what it said, but I think this is the outline. The three specific examples are a failure to testify to truth in a legal setting, or... Act justly. The second is a failure to remain clean or pure or remain holy. And the last one is a failure to keep an oath or be faithful. So said more simply, these three examples boil down to a failure to act justly, a failure to remain holy, and a failure to be faithful. That's the boiled down version of all these circumstances or situations. Now, let's look at each one in turn. The first verse of chapter 5 reads in this specific way. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. This is a failure to testify. See, the situation is someone has been accused of a serious crime. There's a criminal hearing. In fact, the utterance of an oath, that, that phrase there, it could also be translated as a proclamation of an imprecatory oath, which is a threat of serious sort. It's, it's a declared statement that harm will come upon the one been accused of transgressing the law. And although in our text it's a little difficult to tell what the threat is against, is it against the one who has information and refuses to share it, or is it against the one who actually has transgressed God's law? But nevertheless, this is here. So the court case is a public affair, and the charge here is serious. That's the point. The event that precipitates the offense in this announcement that the court has come into session, and anybody who has evidence, come on forward. They are to testify in this case. It's easy, isn't it, to understand how somebody be tempted to, to go out the back door in this situation. There's a lot of risk here in both sides. Here we have a case where someone has seemingly committed a serious crime and to bear false witness would likely bring the death sentence to him who bore false witness. To speak on behalf and testify the truth would likely, therefore, possibly bring harm or the death sentence upon the wrongdoer. So the threat here is real. 
If no one knew that you had seen the crime, if no one knew that you had information pertinent to the matter, it probably would be easy to not say anything at all. The risk would be lower. But failure to testify was a serious sin because it led to a denial of justice. If Israelites, out of a desire for self-preservation or any other reason, failed to speak the truth, then the innocent would be wrongly accused and the guilty might be wrongly justified. In that, a mockery would be made of justice and God's new kingdom would therefore be like all other kingdoms where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So the one who hinders justice by remaining silent when they have pertinent information pertaining to a case bears guilt. That's the first issue. Israel is called to be just, to speak truthfully and stand for justice no matter the cost. In verse 2, we find the next example of a situation that might require a purification offering. Verses 2 and 3 tell us this. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of an unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he's unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he's unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be Guilty. So this is the second. This is a failure to remain clean or pure. Otherwise, remain holy. So the issue here is no longer justice, it's holiness. If you remember, we actually touched on this in the introduction of the book of Leviticus. We, we didn't camp out on it because we know that as we move through Leviticus and even as you read through it, we're going to have opportunities to dive into stuff like this much deeper. But, but here's the issue, and this issue is a category that no longer exists in our society, but it was extremely meaningful for the Israelites. It was even still in place in the day of Christ. Eventually, you had three categories here. You had uncleanness, cleanness, and holiness. Or, said another way, impurity, purity, and holiness. And it was, a, it was a continuum. You could move back and forth depending on the circumstances in your life. Sometimes it would be due to sin, but sometimes it was just the, the cause of natural things that happened. For example, births would move a woman from clean to unclean. And so... To be clean was to be unfit to approach the Lord, and it was also to face the risk of being cut off from the covenant community. And for now, really, I just want us to simply understand that to become unclean was tantamount to being unholy. It was the opposite end of the spectrum. If someone was unclean, then they were unfit for the presence of God. They were unholy. And this, by the way, is why Gentiles were considered unholy. They did not have the presence of God dwelling among them. They had been separated, uh, not had been separated unto God, nor had they been properly cleansed. And so, in our passage, the issue is not that they've become unclean, though. The issue is that they've remained unclean. The issue is not that they've touched a carcass. The issue is they haven't taken the steps the Lord has given them in order to cleanse themselves that they might once again enter into a state of cleanness. Right? It's just like that. most parents aren't going to be upset about their kids getting their hands dirty while they're playing outside. Nor was the Lord upset about a person who had become unclean. But a parent might be upset if they find their kids with their dirty and muddy hands eating chips out of the bag. 
After day in and day out explaining that we need to wash our hands before we eat. Well, in the same way, the Lord had given very specific instructions for how the Israelites were to become clean when they had become unclean. The issue here is the need for a purification offering was because of the neglect of that means. So that's our second example. Finally, the Lord offers one more. A final one. Not only are the Israelites to be just and holy, the Israelites are to be faithful. The Lord offers one final example of a situation that would necessitate a purification. And that is a failure to keep an oath. Be faithful. Here's the failure to keep an oath. Be faithful. We find it in verse 4. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. Here the issue is not justice, not holiness, but faithfulness. Unlike the first example where someone remains silent who should have spoken, here someone speaks when he should have kept his mouth shut. It's just the opposite. Here, one makes a rash promise that he will do such and such. He will accomplish something, usually on behalf of the Lord or usually in relationship to someone else. And and the critical issue to remember in regards to this rash oath is that oaths, hear this, oaths lie at the very heart of the covenant relationship. Remember, God had made an oath with Israel that he would be their God, he would be their king, He would provide and protect them. Likewise, Israel had made an oath with God that they would do all that he had commanded. Right At the foot of Mount Sinai, after Moses read the book of the covenant, the people responded with, and this just racks my brain every time because of what we know of the rest of the story, but but get this. After Mount Sinai, Moses comes down, he, he tells them about the covenant, and here's how the people of Israel respond to that covenant. They say, we will do. We will be obedient. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Certainly, this is not what the text is referring to, but but when we look at this in the scope of all of Israelite history, one might not be too far off to say that that was a pretty rash oath. Don't you think? Israel was to keep its oath, not just its oath to obey the Lord, but all their oaths because they were to reflect the Lord's own faithfulness. They were to be a faithful people. Their yes was to be their yes, and their no was to be their no. So when they realized that they made an oath that they couldn't keep, they were to confess their sins and bring their purification offering. And actually, this is the prescription for all three examples, whether they had been unjust in allowing a a hearing to take place when they had pertinent information and had remained silent, or they had become unclean and neglected, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to purify themselves, or if they offered a rash oath and then remembered later, oh yeah, I was supposed to do such and such and didn't actually do it, then they were to confess their sins and offer a purification offering. Now, as I read and studied this particular passage this week, and really as I came to realize, these aren't arbitrary or random examples. You might read that as you're reading through Leviticus and just think, what, why? These three things. Why? What's the purpose of that? There are a lot of examples for how or when one might use a purification offering that could have been used. 
But these are purposeful, and they're purposeful to illustrate justice, holiness, and faithfulness. And I also believe that this echoes back to the very beginning, and purposely so. That these are examples of breaches of the fundamental requirements of the covenant. It was a failure to live justly, holy, and faithfully before the Lord. How so? Well, let's look. You ready to go back in history? Adam failed to live justly, holy, and faithfully before the Lord. He did. Catch this. Remembering, God created all people to be just, to be in a right relationship with Him. The reality is, we see this exact prohibition in verse 1 play out in the life of Adam. Hear me. Adam had every reason to testify on behalf of God. In the garden, Adam was given access to knowledge about who God was. Adam experienced being placed in the garden with all the provisions that were presented to him. He could have anything he wanted in the garden minus one. One prohibition. God provided faithfully. God loved him. God was good. And Adam experienced that goodness. Even the provision of a wife to walk with him. Yet, when the accuser came and brought a case accusing God of being unfaithful or withholding good from Adam and Eve, we do not hear the voice of Adam. Adam's silent. Adam says nothing. Adam did not testify on behalf of God, though he had every right and every responsibility to do so. Instead, just like chapter 5, verse 1, he remains silent. He stood by and watched as Eve partook of the forbidden fruit before passing it on to him. Adam, therefore, was not just. It was almost the greatest act of injustice perpetuated in human history. Obviously, we know that Adam and Eve were also created to be holy, were they not? They were in a unique relationship with God. They were image bearers set apart unto God to be in right relationship with Him. They were to keep themselves separate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not a stretch to say that eating of that fruit would make them unclean. It would defile them. They would no longer be able to live in the presence of God. And yet, that's exactly what they did. They ate of the fruit. They became defiled, and they were exiled from the very presence of God. They failed to be holy. The unfaithfulness of Adam and Eve is probably so obvious that it barely needs an explanation, does it? Needless to say, Adam and Eve were created to be in a faithful relationship, sons and daughters of the Most High, in a loyal, loving, faithful relationship with their Creator, and yet Adam and Eve revealed great unfaithfulness and ultimately plunged all of humanity into an unfaithful relationship with their Creator. So Adam failed to be just holy and unfaithful. He's not the only one. Who else failed? Israel failed. Israel failed, therefore, to live just, holy, and faithful before the Lord. So so if I'm right here, and Israel's calling, as reflected in this text, is to be just, holy, and faithful, it is really, in one sense, just a reworking of that initial call of Adam and Eve to be just, holy, and faithful. That means Israel is indeed meant to be the new Adam in that unique relationship with God. Where they proclaim the the glories and excellencies of God. It's 
It's not surprising then that these are the examples used to illustrate the use of a purification offering. But what's the problem? Israel is not only unjust, unclean, and unfaithful, but as we see throughout Israelite history, they also just completely forsake Leviticus chapter 5 and the means to remedy the situation. This eventually falls upon deaf ears. They do not pursue justice. They give no heed to God's law. Nor are they willing to submit to confession in their purification offering when they do. Indeed, Israelite history reveals a people who are habitually unjust. Demonstrated most actively in the lives of their kings. Like we could just, so many stories here, right? Just read the Old Testament and you will see a people who fails to be just, holy, and faithful. We see a people who are habitually not holy, not willing to keep themselves separate unto the Lord. We see a people who are habitually unfaithful in the relationship with the Lord, continually chasing after other nations and other gods. And again, what we see in God is the mercy of God and offering a way to cleanse this, but we see the neglect on the part of Israel to take those means and apply them to themselves in a way that ensures an ongoing relationship with the Lord. Instead, all of humanity would have to await. They would have to await until the last Adam. And praise be to God that the true Israel, Jesus Christ, would be perfectly just, completely holy, and always faithful unto the Lord. That's the good news. These are breaches of the covenant. Praise God for the new. The true Israel, Jesus Christ, would be perfectly just, completely unholy, and always faithful unto the Lord. As a reflection of his justice, there was never a moment where he was not testifying to what he had seen and heard in the presence of his father. You think about him in the desert, right? And the temptation in the desert when he's tempted compared to Adam's response. Each time by Satan, he replies faithfully through what he had heard through his father and his word. He testifies to the goodness and faithfulness of God. He is able to say no to Satan because he was willing to testify on behalf of God. And when he's finally brought before the high priest, and the high priest says, I adjure you to tell us, are you the Christ? He testifies and says, you have said so. And from this point forward, you will see the Son of Man descending on clouds in glory. In other words, yeah, I am the Christ. He testified knowing that very testimony would seal his fate and send him to the cross, not only to experience a physical death that none of us could imagine, but to experience the full wrath of God poured out upon him. Those words would seal his fate. He was aware of that, and yet he testified. Christ is just. He was also holy. He always kept himself separate unto the Lord. In a way, in fact, that transcended the categories that formerly were used beforehand to teach Israel. The Holy One, the perfect one, who was never defiled, never in need of cleansing, still identified with his people. Right? We, we know this when after, right before he went into the desert, excuse me, he came to John the Baptist, submitted to his baptism that he might fulfill all righteousness. Likewise, in his life, we see him not fulfilling the law and keeping himself from touching unclean things, but instead blowing those categories up and revealing their true nature. Remember, those categories, they were analogies, they were descriptions, a picture of the purity of a person's heart. In fact, this is what we read in Matthew 15 in our weekly reading. He teaches that very thing. 
The Pharisees, the, the scribes, and Jesus, they stand off in a battle of what is it that really makes a man clean? If you remember what happens, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're upset because Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands in the way they're supposed to before they eat. They're not clean. Everyone knows that the traditions teach that you must wash your hands. That's why they're upset. So Jesus, why are you allowing this? And Jesus fires back and says, you break the law and you're worried about the washing of hands? His disciples come to him and say, Jesus, you, you know that those guys are pretty high power and you just offended the mess out of them. And what does he do? He uses this as an opportunity to teach them. What does it really mean to be pure and clean? If someone who hates God but is able to not touch a dead carcass, is that someone really clean? No. This was a picture, a lesson to be learned that Israel had not learned. So Jesus says, no. Instead, this is what he says in Matthew 15. Instead, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of the heart? Every evil thing. Jesus says, your problem isn't touching things that are unclean. Your problem is your evil heart. And hearing that they, they might not have learned that lesson, surprise, surprise, with the disciples, he takes them all the way to the region of Tyre and Sidon, where they're introduced to a Canaanite woman who is the very picture of uncleanness. I mean, this is the definition of unclean. A Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed child. And she calls out after Jesus and his disciples understand that this woman is not clean. Jesus, tell her to go away. Please, get her away from us. Jesus, in a dialogue with her, finally brings them to the point where they understand, claiming that she is one of great faith. See, he destroyed their categories of cleanness and uncleanness. Jesus was holy at the deepest of levels. He transformed our understanding of what it means to be holy. Of what it means to be in a right relationship with God. It cannot be accomplished by keeping ourselves from what we perceive to be unclean things. It can only be accomplished by the precious blood of Christ. Cleansing our heart and purifying us that we might stand in right relationship with him. So Jesus was not only just and holy, but he was also faithful. The oath that Jesus made was not a rash oath. I mean, if anyone made an oath where we would all understand if they backed out of it, it would be that oath. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about the covenant of grace. Christ promising to obey the whole law for his people to suffer the consequences of their sin, to promise that, to make an oath guaranteeing that he would not stop until he had redeemed every last one of God's people. Knowing even ultimately that it would put him at odds with the Father, the full wrath of God being poured upon his shoulders. Never has such an oath been expressed. Never before, never since, and yet Jesus was faithful. So how do we respond to that? Listen, church family, we are in that last Adam. He is our covenantal head. Therefore, our calling is no less. In fact, how much more should we be just in our dealings with people? How much more should we be willing to testify to the goodness of God? How much more should we be willing, even if it cost us dearly, 
to testify to the truth in each and every situation. How much more should we be holy? How much more should our lives be set apart? Not hold up in some Christian ghetto where we live in a commune together, but lives that are distinguished from the lives around us by the way we live and the way we walk. Followers of Jesus Christ, fully committed to Him. How much more should we therefore be faithful? In fact, I want to read the words from 1 Peter that we read this morning again. And I want you to follow along with me. Talk about faithful, this is the call. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. We'll close with this. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is what we call an imperative indicative right here in the hermeneutical term. This is what what the Apostle Peter is saying. He's saying, this is what you are. You are a holy nation. A royal priesthood. A chosen people. You belong to God. You have been set apart in ways unimaginable. You've been set apart not by a sacrificial system or with the need to bring offerings. You've been set apart by the once and for all sacrifice having perfectly cleansed you and forever purchased you. Therefore, because of that, here's the action. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, be just Be holy and be faithful. Here's the application for us, church family. This is a struggle. We may feel like creating some sort of checklist here. But remind yourselves where we get our power to be just, holy, and faithful. It is not in our own terms, by our own methods. It's simply by clinging to the cross of Jesus. And the closer you cling to Him, the more you will see in your life a desire... To be just, to be determined about the rightness and wrongness of such things, the fairness and fighting for God's justice in this world, to be holy, to not desire the things which would make you unclean, which would damage your mind, but to have a desire for the cleanliness of such things, of a heart that's filled with grace and compassion and mercy, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and to be faithful, that is to be committed to the oath that you've made to each other and to Christ. So church family, the call is simple. The walk is in need of great, great help. Be just, be holy, and be faithful. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, we we thank you for the glory that is revealed in Christ. That though all of humanity was without hope until the coming of Christ, that in Him we have the perfectly just, holy, faithful Savior that we desperately needed. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your just response in every situation. We thank you for your holy life that demonstrated a deeper and more meaningful purity than any external ritual could ever accomplish. We thank you that you have made us a holy nation in Christ. That you set us apart, calling us to live justly and faithfully among one another. I pray that our relationships would be marked by that. That you would be honored and glorified as we live, not for ourselves, but for you and each other. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, Church family, um, please take a seat really quickly. Just our time of invitation. I want to close the service by inviting you. Um, certainly as a Christian that you would recognize where your strength and power comes from uh, to know to be just, holy, and faithful. Maybe there's something you've struggled with recently in your life where you know your dealings have not been just and have not represented the Lord in that way, um, that you've struggled with the, the fight for holiness and certainly the fight to be faithful. We'll say praise God for His Word and His encouragement that Jesus has paid it all for us, that He has perfectly been just, holy, and faithful for us. Therefore, let us not respond with taking His work for granted. Let us therefore respond uh, with being encouraged to live lives that display the justice, holiness, and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. And we're here to do that with you together. So uh, maybe we're calling to greater faithfulness in, in our worship, grow, serve understanding. Maybe we need uh, to seek out brothers and sisters that we've had animosity against and, and ask for forgiveness. Maybe we need to grow deeper into our fellowship with people who can be in our lives in such a way where they can um, encourage us t- towards greater faithfulness. Whatever the case may be, um, I pray that the Lord would work that out in your life. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you know very well that, um, that there's no justice, no holiness, and no desire for faithfulness in your life. My encouragement, therefore, would be the same. It would be to look to Jesus. Because here's the beauty about what we believe in the gospel. We believe that, that you on your own will never be just enough, holy enough, or faithful enough to earn salvation. You simply can't. You're already disqualified because the, the standard is perfection and you have failed. The good news is that when we talk about Jesus being perfectly holy, perfectly just, completely faithful, He did that in such a way that because of the gospel and because of the cross that we get His justice, His holiness, and His faithfulness accredited to our account. This only happens because Jesus faithfully, willingly went to the cross and paid the penalty that you and I deserve in our sin and gave us the gift of His salvation and righteousness in that. If we turn from our sins and we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then today, even though we would be honest in saying we're not just, we're not holy, we're not faithful, the God, the creator of heaven and earth, who created you for the purpose of honoring him, can look upon you and see the justice, holiness, and faithfulness of his son. That you'd be covered in that sin in such a way where it would not be credited to you anymore. That it would be washed completely away by the blood of the Lamb. If you don't know Christ this morning and you stand under the just wrath of God apart from Christ's sacrifice, then make today be the day of salvation. My brother Justin will be down front here. I've got all seven deacons strapped right here um, that that will walk through whatever it takes to make sure that you know uh, that you belong to the Lord Jesus. And if you're a Christian and you just need encouragement or prayer, we're going to leave that space reserved up here uh, for you guys as well.
As for me, it would uh, uh, be a, a wonderful opportunity to meet you here at the back of our service, particularly in our guest of ours have this morning. Make sure you're checking out the Connect table. I know we've got sign-ups for the youth bowling event and sign-ups for our Sunday night fellowship coming up next Sunday night. Um, all those things are ready and available. Sign up back there. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful Lord's Day. God bless each and every one of you. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Brock to, read, uh, to close us out in a word of prayer. Brother Justin's going to read the benediction, and then we'll be dismissed.